Welcome to NACE Clinical Highlights. I am Dr. Alana Morris, Director of Heart Failure Research and Associate Professor of Medicine at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. This is the second episode in a three-part series on recent updates in managing heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or HEFPEF, and what you really need to know now. Joining me is my friend and colleague, Dr. Javid Butler. Dr. Butler is president of the Baylor Scott & White Research Institute, senior vice president of Baylor Scott & White Health, and distinguished professor of medicine at the University of Mississippi in Jackson, Mississippi. He has previously served as the director for heart failure research at Emory and as director of the heart and heart lung transplant programs at Vanderbilt University. So glad you could join me today, Javid. Absolutely a pleasure. In this podcast, we're going to discuss new and emerging therapies for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or HEFPEF. Javid, before we talk about the new developments in the treatment of HEFPEF, tell us a little about the condition itself. For example, who has HEFPEF and is it really a clinically distinct entity from heart failure with reduced ejection fraction? Well, the first question is easier than the second question. So, you know, HEFPEF is is uh, much more common than what we initially thought. Uh, at this point, we, uh, you know, there are really good epidemiologic studies that suggest not only the fact that patients with HEFPEF uh, equal in terms of prevalence with HEFREF. So if you take the entire universe of heart failure patients, about half and half of them will have heart failure with reduced and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. But because the patients who develop heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, you know, sort of uh, uh, aging-related changes in the heart that predispose you to have PEF. And then the common cardiometabolic diseases, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, that all uh, sort of uh, put you at risk for have PEF. The prevalence of those risk factors have also gone up. Uh, so there are actually some recent data that suggest that the hospitalized heart failure patients have PEF epidemiology has actually overtaken uh, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Now, that doesn't mean that heart failure with reduced ejection fraction has gone down. The overall prevalence has gone up, but HEFPEF has gone up faster. But the second question is really difficult. Is it really distinctly di- different from heart failure with reduced ejection fraction? And, you know, I would say uh, both yes and no. So there are some common features uh, that are important for the development and progression of heart failure, which are common to heart failure with preserved and reduced ejection fraction. And in that sense, we may have those therapies that may work across the spectrum. But then there are certain things that that are either very specific to HEF-REF or at least have only been tested in HEF-REF. And I think it will be a little bit of a stretch to say to use those therapies in HEF-PEF. But I think this field is being actively investigated uh, and, and we'll learn a lot more in the future. But But I think we are sort of somewhere in the middle right now. You mentioned um, hospitalizations, which we know is a key metric for patients with heart failure, but what do the studies tell us about clinical outcomes for patients with HEFF, I guess, related to both hospitalizations and mortality? Yeah, so, you know, the three outcomes uh, that we are really concerned about for our patients, obviously, mortality uh, risk uh, is, is the most important uh, uh, in some sense. Uh, hospitalization is is not only important from a clinical perspective because the hospitalizations increase the risk of mortality, but also from a patient and a family caregiver-centered perspective also, but also from an economic perspective for the healthcare system and the society. So hospitalizations are really important. And then our patients not only wants to, they, they, they not only want to live longer, but they want to live healthier as well. 
be functional, have a good functional capacity and improve health status and uh, a quality of life. And in all three measures, if you again look at population-based data, the outcomes of patients with HEF-PEF and HEF-REF are very comparable. Uh, mortality rate may be a, a smidge uh, a lower, but again, really not, not a whole lot different from a clinical perspective. Hospitalization risk, recurrent hospitalization risk uh, are, are the same. Uh, and if anything, the functional capacity impairment and symptomatology may actually be a little bit uh, worse. Another thing where they defer a little bit is that the overall comorbidity burden is plenty in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, and it may uh, make things worse that comorbidity burden tends to be even worse in patients with HEFPEF who are truly multi-morbid patients uh, along with their heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Javid, you noted that um, HEFPEF and HEFREF differ in terms of what treatments have demonstrated clinical benefits. What do the earlier studies tell us about the treatment of HEFPEF and how do those results differ from the treatment of HEFREF? Yeah, so, you know, the Initially, so, so there's a little bit of a historical uh, background here that, uh, you know, the earlier trials in HEFREF was done in patients with uh, heart failure and ejection fraction of 40% or less. Uh, then when we started looking at the other end of the spectrum, we didn't want to miss some patients out. So we, we coined the term heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, not heart failure with normal ejection fraction, because we knew that 40 to 50 is really not normal. So the HEF-PEF trials were done in patients who were who had ejection fraction greater than 40% and had heart failure. So initially, we were doing the trials with the same medications that we used in patients with HEF-REF to try them in HEF-PEF. And the overall trials were, were negative. But then when we started looking into the subgroups of patients, those patients that had normal normal uh, ejection fraction totally, or ejection fraction, which was a little bit less than normal, say that 40 to 50% or mildly reduced range, all of a sudden that we were we were seeing the benefits. So, uh, you know, one of the trials with uh, one of the ARPs, Candesartan, and the CHARM trial uh, showed uh, even in the overall trial, there was hospitalization benefit, but the, but the primary endpoint of cardiovascular death mortality did not uh, hit significance. But if you look at those patients between 40 to 50%, uh, there was sizable benefit. Then there was a TopGet trial uh, with uh, spironolactone uh, and MRA. Uh, and again, that trial ran into a lot of problem in terms of oversight in certain regions of the world. But if you look specifically for the patients in Roland, uh, the Americas, uh, there was a substantial uh, mortality benefit. Now, granted, it's a subgroup analysis, but uh, but there were so many compelling reasons to believe in this result that there is actually a class two indication to use this therapy for reduction in hospitalization. And right now, there are three trials ongoing uh, with MRAs and uh, HEFPEF population. Uh, and then there was a, a digoxin uh, uh, ancillary study as well, uh, looking at HEFPEF population with, with sort of some benefit, not a whole lot with herbisartan. So that's sort of our classic, but I would say from a guideline perspective, uh, both candesartan and spironolactone uh, have a class two indication for use in HEFPEF for reduction in hospitalization, but but with a, with a pretty clear of more benefit in lower ejection fraction patients. Nevertheless, more than 40, but still on the lower end. Well, it's gotten exciting in the last couple of years. We've had some recent trials of newer agents that have impacted clinical care for patients with HEFPEF. So can you walk us through those? Let's start with the Paragon heart failure study. 
Yeah, so Paragon, a heart failure study, again, sort of a similar idea. Uh, they enrolled patients with heart failure rejection fraction of uh, greater than 45%. Uh, and then they had a pre-specified analysis to look at uh, ejection fraction above and below median, whatever the median uh, turns out to be. So overall, the trial narrowly missed its uh, a p-value. It was like 0.06 or 0.059. Uh, but obviously, we are not sort of, you know, entirely bound to the p-values. The, the issue is the clinical relevance. Uh, so suppose even if it was not 0.059, say it was 0.049, and, you know, it was still less than 0.05, and, and you would call it a positive trial. The overall magnitude of benefit uh, was relatively uh, very modest. But then they had this pre-specified analysis of ejection fraction median, median turned out to be 57%. And, and if we think about uh, normal ejection fraction between 50 to 55%, this again goes uh, into sort of a less than normal ejection fraction range. Then there were substantial benefits. I mean, there were uh, uh, substantial reductions in uh, cardiovascular death, heart failure hospitalizations, or overall heart failure hospitalizations uh, reduction. Uh, so on the basis of these uh, results, uh, Valsart and Sucubitril did get an indication for the management of chronic heart failure. Remember that uh, it used to have an indication for a reduction of cardiovascular death, heart failure hospitalization in half-ref or ejection fraction less than 40. But now it actually has an indication for the management of chronic heart failure. But then there is sort of a clause attached to it uh, that the results may be more beneficial for those patients with less than normal ejection fraction. Less than normal is left a little bit to the clinician. Uh, but on the basis of the study, it would be less than 57%, which was the median in the study, which actually turns out to be a really good median because we all consider about 55% as, as the normal ejection fraction. Uh, Javin, I want to come back to this idea that we should consider the continuum of ejection fraction rather than these arbitrary thresholds, as you pointed out, when we treat patients with heart failure. Um, as you mentioned, there have been some very positive outcomes with another new class of medication, the SGLT2 inhibitors. What have we learned about these agents in heart failure, and how can we think about incorporating this class of medications into the care of patients with HEPPAS? Yeah, so we started getting clues that uh, uh, SGLT2 inhibitors may improve uh, the outcomes of patients uh, with heart failure irrespective of uh, ejection fraction. Uh, if you first look at the soloist trial, a smaller trial, only about a thousand patients, uh, looking at sodagliflozin and diabetes. Patients with diabetes, it's an SGLT1-2 uh, inhibitor, uh, unfortunately, because of funding and other reasons, COVID, et cetera, the, this, this trial was stopped early. But nevertheless, the benefit was seen both in patients with uh, uh, reduced and preserved ejection fraction. And there was a 300-patient study with dapagliflozin only looking at quality of life and showed benefit in quality of life, both in half-ref and half-path. Uh, but, but we really needed sort of the bigger trials to give the definitive answer. So there were two trials started, one with empagliflozin called Emperor Preserved and one with dapagliflozin called Deliver. Deliver hopefully will be presented this year sometime. It's in the final stages, so we don't have any results. But uh, Emperor Preserved uh, turned out to be a very positive trial and, and in a way sort of a history-making trial because this is the first trial ever uh, to have met its uh, primary endpoint conclusively for cardiovascular death, heart failure, hospitalization. About 6,000 patients, 21% uh, relative risk, re risk reduction in cardiovascular death, heart failure, hospitalization, and 27% risk reduction in uh, total uh, uh, hospitalization 
uh, first and recurrent. Uh, and then the investigators uh, uh, did a, a presentation on uh, uh, patients with 41 to 49%, so basically heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction, and then excluding those patients uh, and and only showing the results uh, in in the so-called true HEFPAR for those patients with ejection fraction 50% or greater. And there was a statistically significant 17% relative risk reduction uh, in those patients with EF of 50% or greater as well. Uh, so we finally actually have a therapy that seems to work across the spectrum of uh, ejection fraction for heart failure patients. Well, that's an exciting study because these findings really stand out compared to previous trials in HEFPAF. Um, so again, to sort of close our discussion, let's return to the importance of the EF because we tend to put so much emphasis on that um, in clinical practice as well as our patients really wanting to know what their ejection fraction is and has it changed. Have the results of some of these recent trials like Paragon HF or even Emperor Preserve redefined the importance of considering ejection fraction when we're treating patients with heart failure? Yeah, so I mean, as you know, this is heavily debated. And if I were to answer this question today, I would say the answer is no. I mean, ejection fraction is there. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, one can criticize ejection fraction in multiple different ways. But I think before we criticize, we need to then also have an alternative. And right now, we really don't have an alternative. So remember that all your device-based therapies, whether it is uh, uh, implantable cardiac defibrillator or cardiac resynchronization therapy is tied to uh, ejection fraction. Uh, all our neurohormonal blocking agents tends to work in less than normal ejection fraction uh, as well. Uh, so ejection fraction is there. Now, SGLT2 inhibitor has clearly uh, shown that ejection fraction may not be important and maybe MRAs soon with all these three ongoing trials may show the same uh, as well. So I don't think that ejection fraction will, will in the near future will go completely away. There is also a raging debate whether supranormal ejection fraction, those with EF greater than 70%, have a different distinct pathophysiology. So again, we'll, we'll learn a whole lot more about that uh, in the upcoming uh, years as well. Uh, but at best, ejection fraction is not relevant to certain therapies, but it is relevant to other therapies. Uh, if you have a patient with heart failure, and if you have ruled out other causes like, you know, specific causes, you know, pericardial disease, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, obstructive, or something like that, then I think EF is unimportant when it comes to giving empagliflozin, and hopefully uh, we will add other SGLT2 inhibitors as those trial results come out uh, as well. Will we go into a much more pathophysiologic mechanism in the future? Will the precision medicine and all the omics uh, redefine uh, heart failure? Possibly, but that's not where we are today. Well, Javed, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me and share your expertise on heart failure and how we can better manage patients with chronic HFPAF. I think you provided some great information to our colleagues today. Well, thank you. It was uh, great talking with you. It's a really growing field. Uh, but the good news is that there are a lot of positive studies uh, recently, which is good news for the patients and that we have therapies to offer them. If you are interested in learning more about the evolving management of HEFPEF, join us for the second part of my discussion with Dr. Butler, the third episode in this series titled Managing HEFPEF and Evolving Algorithm. You can also go to the NACE website at naceonline.com and register for any of our other enduring activities on heart failure or any other program we have developed. Please like us on Facebook at NACE CME to be part of our online social media community and get access to other content and programs we share. Finally, I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us for this podcast. 
I hope you have learned something new you can bring back to your practice. And we look forward to having you join us for other upcoming podcasts in the future.